You can talk about longing for something else by depicting something else far away. But you can also take what's just in front of you and shake it in a way that's disturbing. And I think that's a more interesting way of getting somewhere else. That was Peter Raun, and this is Nordic Portraits. Peter Raun is a visual artist, designer, and music video director perhaps best known for his figurative paintings that depict male characters placed in awkward positions or difficult situations, serving as a motif for the plight of the modern man. Peter's work has been exhibited extensively within Denmark and internationally, including major shows in Rome, Munich and Hanoi, as well as in 2011 being featured in the prestigious Biennale in Brescia, Italy. Peter, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you. Peter, I wondered if we could start by going all the way back to the early 1980s, where after studying design in Copenhagen and New York, upon your return to Denmark, you found yourself well enmeshed in the music scene. And I wondered whether that was by choice or coincidence and what life looked like for you at that time. Hmm. Not by coincidence. I have been playing music since I was six years old. First classical, the piano. Then I picked up the guitar when I was 12, 13 years old. Then rock music happened, which was like an explosion to be a young teenager in that period. And for me, that was where the spring of art was kind of, you know, I thought this was an explosion of creativity. And what was so fascinating about it was that new formats came out that had no tradition, like, well, records, singles, LPs, record covers. There used to be a brown sleeve with a name at the bottom. There was an explosion on this 32 by 32 centimeter area that, of course, started out with pictures of the artist, but as the as the drugs came in, no. But as, <laughs> as the lyrics and the music became more experimental, it was more about ideas than I miss you or I love you. And the visual part of the music also became something that expressed this. So you would see a record cover that did not have the group on it, but something else, an idea that was obviously important to this group. And this was a canvas for things you had never seen before, because where else would you see this? I thought this was very fascinating, exciting, and I would like to do that too. I started to hang out with musicians, and then I realized that I had sort of two ways I could go. One was music, the other one was the visual. And, um, well, I went with the visual because I don't have what we call perfect pitch. I thought I had a little more of a perfect pitch when it comes to the visual. And yeah, no, I was more interested in that. But it was a perfect combination of my interests and talents that 
some of these musicians asked me if I would do their record cover. And some years later, the music video came, and it was natural for the record companies to ask us visual artists if we would like to try to have fun with doing music videos. And I really did want to have fun with that, because when you play music and you can count the bars, you know when the chorus is going to come, and you can work with the bridge and... It's so much fun to make music videos. It was at that time. Mm. Did you feel at that time as well that music was a frontier that wasn't yet completely tainted by the marketing and control of record labels? Yes, that's exactly. It was the Wild West in a sense. It was a new art form. So there were no conventions at that time. And I guess it's just because you have television and movie theaters and the first music videos were films of the artist performing. Cut to a musician, cut back to the artist. But then creative minds got involved, and you will end up having some videos where you didn't see the artist at all, but they were artistic statements of some sort that you'd never seen before. And I was very fascinated by this. And of course, the groups I worked with were... Uh, I was lucky to work with, for instance, a Danish group called Gangway, who were very open to my ideas. Is that what you expected to find yourself doing after your design study? No, not at all. I went to the architect school, which is, or was maybe, part of the Danish Art Academy. And they had different institutes, Institute for Architecture, and then they had one that was called Institute for Design. Design had three lines, industrial design, furniture design, and graphic design. And you take a little of everything. So I was interested in that. I was not interested in architecture when I found out that it could take up to 12 years to build a hospital. I thought that was simply not my temperament. And actually, I graduated from industrial design because I, I think I had an idea that it would be a way to interfere in products, put some quality into it. I was inspired by Andy Warhol and Danish everyday design, which we have a strong tradition for here. So, you know, the milk you put on the table or whatever utensils from every day are important. And I was interested in that. But, you know, life. Uh, <laughs> so I, I had, well, I got a job with my professor and I was there for some weeks and I realized that I was just not ready to sit in an architect's office having spent that much time. So many years in school. I started when I was seven years old, came out 24 years old from the academy and, uh, thought it was time I did something on my own. And uh, before I knew of it, I had a business going with record covers, posters, music videos, other kinds of graphic design. So uh, that's what I did. So you were a major part of this scene, collaborating with these seminal artists, Gangway, Love Shop, Tusa Tangana, Kim Larson. How then did you suddenly find yourself in the fashion world, having started your own label, Democrats? Well, uh, the thing about working with the music business was that there's a 
positive side to it being the Wild West, but there's certainly also a negative side. And in a sense, I had a more academic background or a more scholared background when it came to graphic design. And sometimes you would work with people who knew absolutely nothing about it. And it could be, you know, you could use a holiday from it sometimes. And I've always been interested in clothing. I'd rather call it clothing than fashion, but yeah, fashion. And then there was a job at a Danish fashion company called Inwear Machinik as an art director. I applied for that and I got it. Uh, then I resigned after three months because I couldn't stand to have to go to work. I mean, to be employed. But luckily, we had such a good start that they said, you know, you can just continue as a freelancer. So I was there for some years, which was very educational for me because I got to work with some very, very good international photographers. I learned so much about light and I've always been interested in how bodies move. And to work with some of these photographers and see how they work with the light on a body in movement and things like that was very educational for me. And then it came to a point where the graphic designer was connected with the fashion designers because prints on t-shirts and clothes became very big. So we worked together and it was more or less putting the logo of the company in different versions on the clothes and people voluntarily would walk around with a big logo on their clothes. And I thought, why not write something meaningful? And that was more or less the idea of this company I made called Democrats. That's also why I called it something not very fashion-like. So I just started producing t-shirts with words written on them that I thought were interesting, intriguing, uh, funny, use more soap, eat more chemicals, just something you pass in the street and then go, what? Which I thought was a better experience than pass someone with a Levi's logo for the 10th time in the same street. <laughs> yeah. Just going back to your very initial experience being employed at mm. that fashion brand, what is it about or what was it about being an employee that was so jarring for you? It's a good question. Uh, sometimes I, th yeah, you know, it's a good question. I remember I got a contract with the company and it said that meeting time was no later than 9.30. You couldn't leave the place earlier than, I think, 17.30. And I know it's ridiculous, but nobody ever told me that. And I remember I looked up, this contract was lying on the table of my office and then I saw a man who was, it was close to the sea. It's a small harbor down, not so far away. And then I saw a man outside with a small uh, fishing, uh, what do you call it? Fishing rod. On the way down. And then I remember I thought he can go wherever he wants. He's free. Whereas I cannot leave this place until at the earliest 1730. And, um, I think it's a theme in my life that I have a very, very strong need to feel free. If we go all the way back to your childhood. So we're going into psychology now. <laughs> no, we're not going that deep. I was just curious 
where your first exposure to art and creativity came from. Mm. I know your grandmother played a big role in taking you to art galleries and museums as a child. Oh, yeah. What sort of environment did you grow up in at home? Yeah, I th- well, I mean, my father and my grandfather, and I think everybody in my family have been self-sufficient, self-employed. So maybe I was used to a lifestyle where you could more or less decide when to go to work. But there was certainly also the other movement that I was feeling of not being free. And what role did art play in your younger years? Uh, I started to draw very early. I was the kind of child that was always always sitting drawing. And um, my grandmother was very interested in art, and so was my father. So we went to museums, both in Denmark and abroad, when we were traveling. I was lucky. We traveled a lot when I was a boy, and they noticed my interest and took me to many great museums in Europe. So I was exposed to great art from when I was small. And did being an artist seem like a possible profession when you were no, graduating? No. We had an artist in the family. <laughs> Can you hear just from the way I'm saying it, where we're going? <laughs> we had an artist in the family, and he was always out of money. Uh, you could not count on him. Once he borrowed some expensive books from my grandfather and my grandfather found out that he'd sold them. So there were only bad things to be said about this guy who was, I guess, my uncle, half uncle. He would perform with a Danish group called El Runerod, burning plastic on stage, that kind of happening art. But he also did, I guess you could call it paintings. And I think my family, like many families at that time, it was not that long after the war, and people were moving up in society, and they had no desire to move down again. So they took very few chances. Steady income, reasonable dispositions. So they realized, my parents, my family, that I was artistic. And I thought they thought, Maybe, you know, an architect would be good. So then you can have a job. And, and I am very interested in architecture. I love architecture. And the older I get, the more grateful I am to architecture. Because when I move around in the town, I just love the buildings. I'm so grateful for the spaces that have been created and the many details the way the light has been treated on the facades, so much beauty there. It's like a second nature. I walk a lot around in Copenhagen and I have favorite parts. And I'm so grateful that we have had so many good architects to do this because art you don't see. I mean, you can go through life without, you know, really seeing any art, but you can't go through it without being exposed to architecture. So I'm very grateful to architects and I would have liked to work with it also. It, you know, it's, I think it was more accidental. Maybe it's because I couldn't keep a job. <laughs> well, you talk about this environment that you grew up in where the value was placed on stability, which is completely understandable in the post-World War II era. Mm-hmm. You then make a decision around the turn of the millennium to 
pursue a career as a fine artist. Mm. I'm curious what that was like for you standing on the precipice and preparing to dive into the unknown. Do you remember how that felt to take such a left turn in your career trajectory? I took the road less traveled. Um, you know, I think freedom is very important to me. And we have a word in Danish called systemkritisk. I don't know what it is in English. System critical or critical of yeah. the system. Yeah. And I think that because I moved, it would go into a little psychology. When I was eight years old, we moved from Copenhagen in north. And I went to a school um, in a class that had already started. I mean, I was, I think, in second grade. And inevitably, I fell outside because it was a very different environment. And I think this is something that stays with you. I never became a part of that. And I wasn't really a part of what I came from either because I was much too sensitive a boy. And for some children drawing or playing music or whatever. You can make your own little world there, which you know and in which you are safe. And you carry this world with you. So, I mean, I've always, when, when I feel there is a system in things, a way that everybody thinks, I always want to get out of it. Well, I try to be very present in life. I try to be very aware of what's going on around me, but also with me and in my life. I try to almost daily ask myself, are you on the right track? You know that feeling? And the older I got, the more absurd I understood it was to have been giving life, to come through as a human being, to walk around on this planet I mean, there are all kinds of scientific explanations, but it's so weird if you think about it. And also this planet is inhabited by these things, these people. You know, you're born and you can do something and you die. And I am fully aware that you cannot just do anything you want in very, very big parts of this globe. They don't have the luxury of having these thoughts or maybe they do but there's nothing they can do except try to survive i know that but that's not what we're talking about or is it i thought that i would like to make a very big experiment with my life a dangerous experiment something that was really thrilling and could go wrong instead of all this you know being on the safe side and then These thoughts came when I was also beginning to see some motives around me and playing with the idea of painting. Because at the same time, when you draw, which I have been doing all my life, then you make a line. You make a line between what separates you and the wall behind you, for instance. But when you paint, it's a totally different ballgame. You make surfaces that connect, that reach each other that go against each other. Some painters do make a black line. But I've always known that when I was a boy, I thought one day you will have to paint also, and you will have to give up the lines and go into the surfaces. But then, you know, my adult life happened. But in a way, I wanted to be true to that. And I also remembered that sitting in my room when I was 14, 15, 16 years old, just drawing, 
was soothing for me. And maybe I felt that if I continued in the adult world, I would get some kind of stress. Maybe my threshold of stress was lower than I really thought. I found myself getting easily angry and uptight about things all the time. And I would actually like not to. And of course, it also often had to do with other people's interference in what you do. So I began to see the possibility of doing something on my own, no interference whatsoever, and taking the chance to see if I could make a living of it. So I start to paint. Which sounds probably easier in hindsight since you've made a success of it. But at the time, you had a wife, two young kids. Yeah. How did that conversation go? You're very well prepared. You know what I'm going to say. Yeah, but she asked me for at a certain point, you know, what is your plan B? <laughs> and I thought about it. And then I answered her a day or two later and said, there is no plan B. Because you know how it is with plan Bs. It's usually the one that you end up taking. <laughs> so you opened this new chapter as a fine artist. And from your very early days right up to the present, there's been this common subject matter that you're dealing with. This depiction of men in suits, mm. often in awkward positions or almost states of paralysis. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little about what these figures mean to you and how you came upon them? Yeah. I can try. I began to see something in my friends' faces that I thought was interesting. So I knew I wanted to do something with that. And then having worked with so many different styles for different groups and different directions, there were so many ways I could go. And then actually I did some music. I made an album. I, I even had a contract with EMI. And some friends of mine helped me produce it. Fridge of Toxvi, who is one of my main characters, but also Henrik Belling from Gangway and Thomas Blackman, who is also a friend of mine. And when I heard this music, I realized that it was all in minor. And there was this dusty, black and white, Central European atmosphere about it. And that helped me find a way with all the different possibilities I had to decide only to paint with black and white tones, a little tint maybe, but be very restricted with the colors to have a sort of black and white photo feel of my things. But also because one of the things that always have inspired me are grown-ups from my own childhood, looking at them. My grandfather and his friends, their suits, their white shirts, the way their tie would be sitting, or all these details I thought was very interesting. And there's something about this man, which is just any man, Jedermann, you say every man, that I thought would be a good figure to send him into the world and experience some of the feelings I wanted to deal with or talk about. And I found out that Fritjof, my friend, would be a good character to work with because he's like, he could be Polish or American or French. I like that. He could wear a suit. So I started to sketch with him as my main character. 
And of course, I was thinking about what went wrong with the first direction of my life. It was in a way a reaction because I realized that it didn't have any meaning for me any longer. So I tried to take this person that I wanted to be, but also failed to be, who is someone who tries to do his best, put on his finest clothes, goes to work, looks sharp, and is in some kind of control, which we all have to be. And then put this person in some kind of situation where he loses control, where the picture of perfection loses control. Somehow it was very rewarding and soothing for me to see it. And I've been painting it now for 15 years and I have struck something that it keeps coming. So I'm glad I waited so many years to um, decide what was my subject. Because, you know, your contribution to the common conversation is your own experience. And if you somehow can make it into something other people can maybe not understand, but feel. Maybe you have contributed with something. Yeah. You mentioned that word feel. I've heard you speak in the past how you've been more interested in being direct with your art and not necessarily making things too intellectual, but instead wanting to elicit an emotional response. Mm. The idea of creating works that perhaps speak more directly to people on an emotive level, was this a conscious decision when you started painting? Uh, I don't know if it was conscious. I think that having spent decades with youth culture and realizing that people in their 40s still want to be and look and act like they are in their 20s and thinking back on things that interest me when I was a boy and that was American and Italian French movies with grown-ups and grown-ups problems which I thought was very interesting much more interesting than something I could see was designed for teenagers. I lost my dog or my dolphin or something, you know, didn't really catch me. But something like Fellini's movies or American noir. And I, I missed grown-ups in the whole media landscape, in art and in movies and in general. I mean, you can talk about longing for something else by depicting something else far away in a different galaxy on the other side of the planet on a starry night. But you can also take what's just in front of you and shake it in a way that's disturbing. And I think that's a more interesting way of getting somewhere else. Mm. So in a culture that we find ourselves in today that worships youth... What is the plight of the middle-aged man in the West? Uh, that's not for me to say, but if you, for instance, get children, you have to step into character and become the grown-up, which I think can be a problem. I think many people have a conflict there and would like there to be two kids. And what is interesting about it is that the market is almost like a force of nature, I mean, in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, where I started to listen to music, there was a new consumer group, which were young people, because 
they were living at home and they were having jobs, so they had a lot of money. So they became an enormous consumer group. And all these products were made for them. And I noticed you just got some vinyl through the door. You're still buying records. You have this behavior. Of course, I, you know, could happen to me too. But this, of course, also becomes a way of the way you see yourself. Your self-consciousness is, I am someone who is listening to music, into music, buying records, buying the t-shirt with my favorite band, wearing that t-shirt to work. And you kind of stay in that mode. And there's nothing wrong with it. I just also look at bodies, people aging, and we have fabulous, mostly French and Italian designers, also American, who can create clothes that fits an older body better. And it's just to say yes and go with it. And I think it's so interesting to see how people hang on to their youth in all these areas and deny to step into their 40s, their 50s, in some kind of grown-up person's character. And then you can say, well, that's not for you to, you know, they can do what they want. Yes, they can. But I don't find it beautiful. I think it has to do with dignity, the way you move as an older person or a grown-up person, just a grown-up person. Hmm. How did you view adults when you were younger? I think you learn a lot about the world. I thought that they were in control. They looked like it. And of course they are to a certain extent. But later on you realize that they were not. When you pass your mother's or your father's age, how old were your mother when she had you? 24. Yeah, right. Remember when you were 25? That's a year after. That's yeah. your mother's age when you were one year old. And you know how important what happens the first three years of your life is. What were you doing when you were 25, 26? Probably still learning to do my own laundry. <laughs> yeah, you learn that fast when you have a child. Right. So that's interesting. But the way that you depict these men is often in a position of crises, weakness, mm. insecurity mm -hmm. in their posture. Mm. Do you think that we as a society have created a taboo around the fact that men are expected to achieve and perform and behave in a certain fashion, and yet most are living under a, an illusion of control or a guise of having it all together? I don't know if I think we've created a taboo, but I think we've created an expectation mm. to men. And when I talk about it, and this goes for my paintings too. I'm talking about male-female, because this certainly goes for women as well. And many women are interested and understand, if you want to put it that way, my work. So, yes, I think that I felt it too as a boy. Luckily, there were the women to protect you against the men who wanted to make you a man. I could sometimes feel that I belonged to the women. My mother and my grandmothers, they would protect me and the men would come and pick me up and say, do that. And I hated it. And uh, I resisted it or I would protest. I think it's very interesting right now that with the war in Ukraine, was it men between 15 and 60 that had to stay in Ukraine? The interesting thing is that you could say it's a setback 
for men and talking about getting out of that role because we thought our civilization was so far that we wouldn't have to go to war. But when we do have, that's very confusing. It's very interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this. We would probably both be in Ukraine fighting right now if we were Ukrainians. <laughs> Your depiction of these men has evolved over the years. Yeah, depiction, well, how did you think they have... In terms of just from a pure aesthetic standpoint, yeah. the elements that you've introduced into mm. the, the universe, I'm curious whether that tracks with your own autobiographical understanding yeah, of but yourself. It, yeah, yeah, it does in a way. For instance, during the corona, I have started to trek in wood forests some years back with my wife. But of course, we intensified it a little bit during the epidemic. So the forest as an element was very present in my last exhibition or rather the difference between the garden and the forest, of course, you know. So I was working around that. Where do you stand now with your own sense of identity, given that you yourself said you had somewhat of a crisis at 40 when you were stepping into this new world? Are you more at peace? Yeah, I try to be. I, um, I work a lot with my shame, and uh, try not to be ashamed about who I am and what I do. But we all have things we fight with or we work with, and usually they have been put into us when we were so small, pre-language, that it can be very difficult to uh, get it out of your system. Hmm. It's interesting because shame is something that I think is very common for the modern man to wrestle with. Yeah. However, there doesn't seem to be a lot of solutions given as to how to purge it. Do you think all people have an issue with shame? I do, actually. I think yeah, it's I think an so in, innate. I think so, thing. too. And also, we're supposed to feel it. It's a thing that is in us and should be there. But, of course, it can be more or less triggered by the way we're brought up. Um, yeah. Your work also deals with power dynamics. Yeah. Can you speak a little to that? Yeah. Yeah, I've always been interested in um, the relation of powers. Probably has to do with my issue with freedom. The minute somebody says, do that, then I have a problem with it. And most of the way the world is organized is one person saying to a number of persons, do that. And then they do it. And then they say to more people, do that. And they say it to a much larger number, do that, you know, and then things happen in the world. And I always found that very interesting. And of course, the iconography of power, for instance, Russian posters, the depictment of the Soviet worker, how alike they are and muscular they are. And, uh, and then you have the American loner who comes into town. Uh, yeah, well, there are many ways of seeing it, but I just find it interesting. The men that you're depicting, are they free? Nobody is totally free because there is someone waiting for you that you cannot escape or something. And I guess at a certain point in your childhood, you realize that, that you will eventually die. And uh, that's a cruelty. That's a cruelty of life. That's a condition. 
And that's a blow we all get. And we know from psychology that that kind of experience can be traumatic. So in a way, we're all traumatized from a certain age because we know we can push it in front of us. But subconsciously, we know it. And I think that that's part of being a human being. Have you been able to find a level of peace in reconciling that? Yeah, especially after I started to paint. What is it about the catharsis of painting for you? Is it the solitude of being able to work on your own? And is it spending time with these characters? Is it the finished work and the dialogue that you then have with your public? or what? It's all the things you mentioned. I like the way of working. I'd like to be by myself when I work, to go deep into uh, an atmosphere or a feeling. But also it's freeing for me to depict situations that I think are, well, shameful or weakness. I meet elder women. For instance, I'm calling my exhibition at Tightness Museum right now, The Fall. And an older woman, she kind of, she was asking me about that title. And I could feel that she didn't like that I was showing these men in these situations. There was something weak about it. She was a generation who probably knew that it was important that men are strong or think so. And I noticed that I felt a sting of shame to be the one not supporting the image of the strong man and disappointing this wonderful elderly art-interested lady. But I'm sorry, that's, um, that's how it is. And so I think I'm freeing myself through, yeah, you can call it catharsis. There's something very um, freeing. And sometimes I start on a painting and I think, gosh, this is so embarrassing. There's so much shame in this. Now I'm just going to paint it and I don't have to show it to anyone. But then my gallerist comes by and says, hey, that's a very strong painting. Um, I can't wait to get it down into the gallery. And then it's out in the world and... In a way, it's uh, very, uh, it feels good. Mm. Having lived abroad for a period of time, Peter, and being such an observer of people, I'm curious what your reflections are on Danish society or what you've observed about Scandinavian culture as opposed to the rest of the world. I think the different mentalities of the different societies have a lot to do with the nature and the Scandinavian surroundings are tough it gets so cold in the winter that if you're not inside you will die you cannot lay under an olive tree and uh, and relax and also the population have been spread out so the way you survive is that you get together with the others and you build something and you collect fire food and so on for the winter and then you cooperate on getting through it. And I think this has developed a very strong culture for working together and helping each other and being part of a tribe or a society where everybody is aware of this. So in terms of surviving, I think it's very good. But the price is, of course, that you cannot say, I'm not like the rest of you and I'm leaving. Because if you do that, 
you go into the cold Nordic night and you never come back. So you have to fit in to uh, the egalitarian way of thinking. So we have this very tough justice with people who think they are different. So there is an expectation that you think alike, feel alike, behave alike. And that's, of course, not, if you ask me, very interesting to be around. Hmm. Or that, 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 that's a drawback. Have you learned to embrace that identity within a Danish context? Well, I'm grateful for it in the sense that my children can go to school for free and education is free. My own education was free. Uh, I think that, you know, there are conceptions of, if you look at architecture, it's like there's only one way to build right now and it's killing me. And it will probably in the long run also kill the people who live in those buildings one way or the other. Well, you know, when I walk in Fredericksburg, Frederiksberg, because I was born there and it somehow has a magic for me. And when I look at the details of the houses, the doors, the windows, the roofs, and I imagine an architect living in 1888 and he's sleeping with his wife and he goes out to take a leak in the morning, he goes back into bed and the 10 minutes before he falls to sleep, He's thinking about this detail of a door that he's working on. And he decides, instead of one in the middle, I'll make two smaller ones that come out on both sides. Just like the leaves of a tree would say, hey, we can find the sun here or something like that. And I'm filled with gratitude that someone put so much feeling and thought and effort into it. And it makes it even more difficult for me to understand how someone can just say, how about a sharp 90-degree corner down here, like one billion other corners? I don't like walking by all these sharp corners. They don't talk to the way I am created, my body, the way the, the rounded corners do. It's like a hostile environment instead of something that is taking you in. And so this kind of society establishes some kinds of ways of doing things which you more or less have to stay within. Mm. I'm curious, your work seems to straddle this line between the absurd and often comical as well. There's a mm. hint of humor to what mm. you're producing. They're not devoid of hope, these works. No. But if you are leveling some form of criticism then what is your main point of contention that you're expressing through these characters? Yes, but like, can I just, I mean, I'm not criticizing the modern man. I am showing the result of the expectations to the modern man slash male, female. Mm. The modern man is just a man living now and he hasn't done anything wrong, but I am painting men when they try to respond to the expectations they have, and they, you can say society, but we have it inside of us. So it's just, it's a person who's trying to look the best, do the best, you know, be a prime member of the workforce that we need in our society. And I have nothing against them at all. On the contrary, I have the greatest respect, but I just 
want to talk about how much they demand from themselves if they maybe demand too much and forget something. And I think a way of doing it is to take this image of the perfect man and then, like I was talking about earlier, putting him in some kind of distress where it goes wrong. He hits the wall of modernity. Many people have sent me an article from, I think, The Guardian of Japanese businessmen who work, I don't know, 100 hours a week, something crazy. And then I think Saturday night, they go out and they drink and they drink. And then Sunday mornings around in Tokyo, you can see a man in a Dior suit, you know, <laughs> unconsciously lying between cardboard boxes outside a bar because he has so much steam to let out and has been like this for five full days and you just have to find some way out, some kind of relief from that. And I'm happy that people see the similarity between this guy and the men that I paint. In closing, have you ever wondered what sort of a man you'd be today if you hadn't have opened this new chapter as an artist? No. Well, let me think. Well, I don't know. And, and, and um, I think I would still be a person that would be curious and on the move, but maybe in another direction. Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure hearing your reflections on your own work and culture at large. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>